Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. I've had today's episode on my wish list ever since we started doing the Giving Ventures podcast. I'm excited to introduce to you two institutions working to offer alternatives on the current state of higher education in America. You no doubt are aware of the many problems with higher ed, from crackdowns on free speech to intolerant professors to bloated administrator roles that, in turn, drive up costs. Certainly, there are efforts within certain institutions to drive reform from the inside of those gilded walls, but what about a little marketplace competition? That is what our guests today offer. First, we'll hear from Pano Canellis of the University of Austin, and then from Stephen Blackwood of Ralston College. These two upstart institutions both offer fascinating approaches and big visions of what is possible when we return to the core tenets of what higher education should be about. We try to give you a bit of optimism with every episode of Giving Ventures, and as depressing as the topic of colleges and universities can often be, I think what you're going to hear from Pano and Stephen will uh, put a smile on your face. So let's jump in. Starting a new university is not easy, but you might not realize that if you've only been watching our first guest, Pano Canellis, as he and his team get the University of Austin off the ground. The University of Austin idea has mustered a phenomenal group of advisors, a lot of inquiries among professors and students ready to be a part of it, as it looks to boldly bring back the original idea of what a liberal arts college should be, one that pursues truth at all costs and is open to inquiry and questioning and exploration. Pano formerly ran St. John's College in Annapolis. Uh, you may know it as a great books school. Uh, which which is a really interesting model, and so probably good preparation for what you're doing here. So, Pano, for those who may not know anything about the University of Austin, why don't you give us the quick overview of what the school is meant to be? Sure. Well, thank you for uh, having me on today. It's a great pleasure. So, University of Austin is a um, a new uh, private research oriented university being built in Austin, Texas, that is. Um, committed and dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. And what we're building this university for is essentially to address what we see as a crisis in higher education. Um, There are several crises in higher education that are uh, interlinked. Um, One is a kind of loss of faith in the fundamental principles of what uh, higher education should stand for. Um, the second crisis is, is the financial crisis that we see in higher education, the sort of financial models um, coming apart at the seams. And the third is a kind of curricular crisis in that universities really haven't um, uh, adapted themselves to the kind of fluid, dynamic world we live in to prepare young people uh, to be the kind of change agents and leaders for tomorrow. So. So we're basically, you know, we're trying to address big things, big problems, big questions at the same time. 
Um, and we're doing this, uh, you know, with a, a, a degree of commitment to principles. Um, I would say that we see the, the root cause, I think, of so much of the, um, let's say, uh, decay in higher education is that we see a couple pathologies in higher education that have taken root. Uh, one is on one hand is the uh, the notion that um, there's no such thing as truth, um, that everything is relative, and that the uh, you know the sort of individual is you know the primary determinant of was right. Um, so this sort of relativism is this kind of it makes conditions for learning impossible if everybody gets to decide what their own truth is. And on the other hand is uh, the advent of ideologies uh, becoming dominant at, at universities. So if on the one hand, relativism holds that nothing is true, on the other hand, ideologies say, oh, we know exactly what's true. These five things are true, and now the job of universities is to simply uh, execute on whatever it is, social justice or principles of X, Y, or Z. And so we're trying to reclaim a space between these two poles for universities where really it's the pursuit of truth that's the primary activity of a, of a university. I like that articulation that on the one hand there's no truth and on the other hand our truth is the right truth. That is, right. that, is that really boils it down very nicely. You know there, there are so many conservatives out there who are upset probably more so I would say than, than liberals who are upset with the academy and what it is today and so there's a lot of conservatives that have really glommed on to this idea of the University of Austin as an antidote to, to all the problems that you just listed. But I heard you in a conference last year make a fairly passionate case that you are not building a conservative school. So how should we think about the lens of the school? Well, I guess what I would say is we're not building a university that is meant to be um, exclusively populated by people of a conservative persuasion. Uh, we want to create a university where conservatives are on equal footing with people who have other commitments or beliefs. Um, I mean, the way that I see it is, is that education is either, it's either liberal or it's illiberal. And of course, what we mean by liberal education is not sort of, doesn't have a political connotation. A liberal education is simply um, an education that helps us to understand what human freedom is and how to exercise our freedom responsibly. And so that for, for us is really the kind of core of the, of, uh, the liberal education that um, the University of Austin stands for. Um, we are totally committed to learning from tradition uh, with a spirit of innovation. Um, you know, if you think about the Western tradition, the Western tradition is a tradition of intellectual pluralism. Uh, it's not, exclusively left or right. It's, it's not, um, it, it's not a, uh, the tradition is one in which ideas are constantly uh, contested and unsettled. Um, the vibrant exchange of ideas, in fact, is the, it's the source, I think, of the vitality um, of the Western tradition. And so for, if, if you think about the purpose of a university, a university exists for, let's say, three reasons. To discover knowledge, to transmit knowledge and to preserve knowledge. So the necessary conditions uh, to uphold the purpose of a university are ones of uh, open inquiry, uh, freedom of conscience, and civil discourse. So, you know, 
how this kind of spirit, these sorts of principles track onto our contemporary politics. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, is that a conservative university? Is it, uh, it uh, it's, it's hard for me to explain, but I think what we're doing is we're fulfilling really the purpose of a university by adhering to the legacy and traditions that universities have upheld over time and that we've lost today. And you have your first full-fledged class uh, of freshmen coming in in fall of 2024, I believe, is the, the target date. So not this fall, but the next. So looking ahead to that, for an entering freshman, how is their experience going to be similar to some other liberal, similarly-sized liberal arts education? How is it going to be different from some similarly-sized liberal arts education? Yeah, I mean, what we're trying to do is really create an institution that synthesizes the best of a liberal arts institution and a research institution. So we're trying to combine, let's say, theoretical knowledge and applied knowledge, uh, wisdom and action, knowing and doing. And so we've really reconceived of what a curriculum should look like in higher education. Um, and we've done this, our solution is either really elegant or just stupidly simple. Um, what we did was we said, okay, we have four years with undergraduates. Uh, what do we need to teach them first and what do they need to achieve before they leave? And it was clear to us that, you know, the, the most important thing that they have to acquire is uh, practical wisdom. Uh, so the first two years of the curriculum are, are dedicated almost exclusively to what we call our intellectual foundations program. And this is a, you know, deep and, um, and broad liberal arts program that covers philosophy and literature and history and politics and mathematics and science and music and interrelates all these different disciplines. And that's conducted primarily through the reading of, um, you know, great books in a discussion setting so that students have time to really ask the great human questions and dive deep into the answers that have been presented over time and, and think not only about kind of human questions from the kind of societal and cultural level, but what it means to be a human being today uh, as, as a young person as they're sort of preparing for their future. So they're gonna sit in that world for a couple of years and kind of marinate in great ideas and great books and then in the latter half of their educational experience, rather than have traditional academic departments where you just go and you check boxes for required courses, we're creating what we call academic centers of inquiry, which are inter interdisciplinary thematic units where economists and, you know, and, uh, and biologists and, and literary folks will gather together around uh, important thematic questions, economics, politics, history, education, public service, uh, STEM discipline-oriented questions. And students will become junior fellows in one of these academic centers. And so the latter part of their education is about research and uh, you know, thinking about action in the world and thinking about developing projects and working with mentors and that. So our education begins with a distinctive liberal arts foundation and then goes on to prepare students to become engineers, political scientists, writers, politicians in a very hands-on and directed way. Is there any other school out there that is doing its curriculum in that kind of format? Or is this really a new innovation of U of Austin? Uh, no school that I'm aware of. 
I mean, you know, what you generally have is a kind of divide between, you know, the sort of liberal arts model or the research model. I mean, sometimes there's some overlapping elements, but, uh, you know, we want to have a full commitment to both of these. And to give you just a kind of, you know, um, a sense of the distinctive quality, you know, most schools that call themselves liberal arts colleges are really just presenting students a kind of like, here's 40 different courses, and you take a little bit of literature, you take a little bit of philosophy, and maybe a science course. Our intellectual foundations program is an intentionally designed bespoke program. So all students have the same intellectual journey for two years. They're reading the same books. They're involved in the same discussions. They're, you know, intensively probing the, the big human questions. Um, that's missing for most institutions. Um, St. John's College, where I was, has this kind of um, character to it. But most institutions are not... Um, you know, cultivating these deep through lines of intellectual inquiry that really, really teach young people how to dive into important questions. We're a little ways off from having that first class come in, but but you're not just sitting around. Um, you, you already have some education going on. You've got these forbidden courses. Talk to us about that. What are, what are those? So the forbidden courses, um, you know, when we began this project not even two years ago, and we made the kind of major announcement about um, University of Austin only in November of 2021. Um, and as we, you know, as we announced the project, we received all this, you know, media attention, visibility. I mean, it was crazy. A school came out and said that they're dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth, and that seemed to heads exploded. You know, wild, wild, <laughs> and, crazy uh, stuff. And, and I thought, well, even though we're just getting off the ground, we can't just say that we're going to do something. We actually have to do it. And so that very first summer, you know, not even six months into the project, uh, we launched what we call the Forbidden Courses. And the idea was to um, invite students from other universities to come spend time with us over the summer to take courses on topics that um, other institutions aren't eager to address. Um, because they don't know how to talk about, let's say, vexing or controversial issues in a civil way. So we gathered, um, you know, I mean, amazing faculty, you know, scholars, public intellectuals, people like Neil Ferguson and Ayan Hirsi Ali, and uh, we have Walter Russell Mead coming, Barry Weiss, uh, Deirdre McCloskey. And we offered seminars that we knew would be provocative, seminars on gender or on capitalism or race. And what we did was we wanted to construct classrooms in which those, those difficult topics could be discussed in a civil manner. So we invited students from other universities to come. We weren't sure what the response was going to be because we had just launched. I was afraid we had 80 spots for the first class, uh, the first uh, couple weeks. I was afraid we weren't going to fill them because, you know, we're brand new. And we had literally thousands of applications from around the world. The number one school for applications was Stanford, followed by Harvard. And you, you know, if you're watching what's happening at Stanford, you could see why students would be interested in actually having courses where you can talk about difficult things in a civil way. Uh, we had students from the Sorbonne, from Oxford, from Heidelberg, from you know, universities all across the U.S. and the world. And they came together. And they, this was an intellectually pluralistic group. We carefully cultivated students so that we'd have a wide range of opinions they sat around a table, they discussed things in a civil manner, and I mean, it was, by all accounts, one of the most intellectually enriching experiences um, these students and the faculty had ever had. So for us, this was proof of concept. This is the community that we want to build. 
We want to build a community that is dedicated to the civil discourse that under, underlies a pursuit of truth. And so we just jumped in and started doing it. We're doing it again this summer, and we're seeing a similar response with students. We have amazing faculty lined up. Um, it's really exciting. That is really neat. One of the problems you highlighted at the top was uh, you mentioned curriculum. You've talked about how yours is a little bit differently, but you also highlighted the financial problem and just the funding model is kind of broken uh, on college, or at least many people think it is. So talk about the funding model for you. It's, it, you know, what you're doing is a small thing. You got to raise a lot of money. Uh, college funding is weird anyway. So how are you doing things differently? So we are, we're really committed to um, creating a financial model that's sustainable both for students and for the university. I would say at least half of the universities out there right there and uh, today are in financial distress. Wow. Um, and so families are in financial distress. Institutions are. Something's going wrong. So what we're committed to is a low tuition model, or let's call it a reasonable tuition model. Our tuition is going to be what I, I hate to pick on Harvard, but our tuition will be less than half of Harvard's tuition, right? Um, yet we're still going to provide an education um, that is as rigorous and excellent as you would find at any elite institution. How are we going to do that? Well, first order of business, get rid of the administrators, right? Harvard today has 16,000 students. 15 and a half thousand administrators and only 2,300 faculty members. Okay, the number of faculty relative to students has not gone up over the years. That's not why the cost is rising. The number of administrators has, you know, trebled, quadrupled, quintupled at most institutions. And most of those administrators are up to no good, right? I mean, the administrators are taking over the culture of institutions. Universities should exist for students and faculty. Administrators should simply be support staff. So we're gonna create the leanest possible administration. We're gonna pare away you know, all the extraneous um, administrative units that you have at most schools. We're going to, um, in fact, we're gonna actually exile most administrators from campus. Uh, we're gonna build a campus with as few administrators on campus as possible, just the ones who serve students directly the others can work remotely. We're actually building an offsite virtual administrative hub. We you know, let them do their work, but we don't need them to be integrated into the culture. And by doing all these things, we're gonna radically reduce the cost of education. We have some other ideas as well. I mean, we're really committed to, to making sure that every dollar goes where it should, um, and that's to um, academic instruction and student support. So. Um, by putting around us kind of constraints, by saying we're only going to charge $30,000 a year in tuition, which sounds like a lot of money, but you know, your average public K-12 through school district is spending $20-some-thousand-dollars to educate a seventh grader, right? So if we set our tuition around thirty, that compels us to be um, efficient with the way that we spend money, and we're going to adhere to that over time. Well, quickly as we wrap up, University of Austin in five years and in 50 years, where are you? Um, University of Austin in five years, uh, we have, we've passed, we've surpassed our first goal of a thousand students. We're building a big, beautiful campus just outside of Austin, which we've already have master plans for working on. We, um, we are seeing around us a whole constellation of new institutions 
that are developing because we've proven that you can open a university today um, in spite of the resources you need, in spite of the pushback from the status quo and uh, in spite of the problems around accreditation, we're going we're gonna to be successful and this will pave the way for other institutions. 50 years from now, um, University of Austin is not the outlier, but is the standard. Um, you know, that, that there's not a, a single institution or a small set of institutions dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. Um, but, you know, that most or maybe even all institutions are following that pathway. Those are bold goals, and uh, I wish you all the best with them because it's it's exciting. It's been exciting to watch this grow over the past couple of years, and I'm excited to see how it does over the next few. Thank you so much, Pano. Thank you. My pleasure. Really thrilled to talk with you today. Thanks so much. The second new college we will highlight today has a focus on the humanities, and that is Ralston College. Ralston is down in beautiful Savannah, Georgia, though as we'll hear, it also extends its campus to Greece with its master's program and around the world with its online learning. Dr. Stephen Blackwood is the founding president of Ralston. Uh, Stephen has had fellowships at Harvard, University of Toronto, University of Cambridge. His academic pursuits often have him exploring the nature of the human person and the evolution of the ideals, institutions, and cultural forms that enable humans to flourish. His sweat equity, though, is now uh, trying to get a college to flourish. So, Stephen, let's talk about that. I, you know, I actually want to start with something I heard you say at a conference last October. You said, quote, if we'd started new colleges 50 years ago, we wouldn't be in the situation we are in now. I thought that was very profound, uh, and there's a lot in that. So maybe at a high level, what is the situation we're in now at the very highest level? I think most people kind of get it. Uh, and why is a new college the solution as opposed to reforming the ones we have? Well, first, thank you very much, Peter, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the The situation we're now, you know, I don't like to be a catastrophist or, a redu- or re- sort of too reductive. I think that's one of the things that we need to be careful about, frankly. Uh, but broadly speaking, there are very serious dysfunctions that are systemic. Uh, we have escalating costs. We have ideology in the classroom. We have... Uh, uh, huge problems of governance and student life and culture. The, the, the basic fact of the matter is, uh, if you take a, zoom out even to sort of 30,000 feet, the problem is even worse than that because our universities are meant to be right at the kind of the lifeblood of our culture, the transmitting of what a culture is to the next generation, the ideas and ideals that have sustained and given rise to human uh, flourishing and prosperity. And I would argue that at that deep level of transmission, the system is broken. We are no longer transmitting the very possibility of human flourishing. It's as if we've, we've, we've thrown out the wisdom of the past and somehow hope that the future will survive. And so at the, at the, at the broadest level, I'd say you have both uh, higher educational specific problems relative to the marketplace of higher education, from the student loan crisis to kind of you know, woke politics and activism in the classroom to the, the vocationalization of the classroom to, to the, the slipping of standards, the evacuation of the curricula, all that at the higher educational level. But then then you have the basic question of what, what is a university and why do we need them? And if they're really not doing their jobs, how can our culture survive? So I'd say that's, that's in, the, in, the, in the biggest picture, the way I would uh, describe it. When you say, well, why is a new college necessary? Well, I mean, I think it's very good to ask that question relative to other industries. I mean, why would we think that, that, that education 
would be any different from any other sort of stagnant or failing industry, whether it's technology or, or, or healthcare or anything at all that human beings do. When, when, when the system is failing, the, the time has taught us that the, the sharpest, most effective, most trenchant intervention you can make is simply to do it better. Do it better, do it faster, do it cheaper, do it more beautifully, more inspiringly. Build a better alternative is always the best way to have some effect over the corruptions, perversions, and lazinesses of the status quo. And if we'd done it 50 years ago, we would have more prosperous uh, institutions now, right? Thanks for returning to that. Uh, I think it needs to be said that these problems that have become very much uh, uh, widely, uh, people become very widely aware of uh, in terms of you know the, the way in which our universities are a significant problem culturally uh, through the ideology and activism and so on that, they're, that they are sort of distributing. Though that problem has come very much sort of to the fore in a kind of big public way in the last few years, you know, the fundamentals have been broken for a long time. You can go back to one of the most famous books about this, uh, William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale, I think it's written in 1951 or so. It's like 70, 70 years ago. Closing the American Mind by Alan Bloom, 1985. I mean, that's nearly 40 years ago. You've got Roger Kimball's Tenured Radicals, I think is 1991. That's, 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 that's 30 years ago. I mean, what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that we've had perspicacious clarion calls to action, diagnoses of a really, really big problem for, you know, the better part of it's closer to a century now than it is closer to a decade. And yet, what have we accomplished in that time? You know, we've made some good efforts at internal reform, and I'm a supporter and, you know, friends with and great admirer of those efforts. I think they're really important. It would be pure nihilism to abandon the institutions that we all know and love. And yet, and yet, we have to also admit, in that time, the problems have gotten far worse and not better. So our efforts at reform have been total failures from the point of view of reversing or turning the tide of the overall problem. Because we can all say, if we'd acted 50 years ago, you know, things would be different. They would be different. Frankly, there are some people who are wealthy enough to found colleges in every state of the country with billion-dollar endowments. If if we had colleges that were doing what they should do, our, our country would be different right now. But to quote, I think it's the Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree is either 50 years ago or right now. And I'm in the right now category because we can't, uh, don't have a time machine to go back 50 years. Well, let's talk about what you're planting right now. You, you frame up on the website that Ralston College is, quote, a community dedicated to freedom and of uh, freedom of thought and speech. What does that look like in practical terms? I and mean, what does this college really look like? Well, right now we have a we have a our first, we've launched our first degree program. It's a one year master's in the humanities. It's essentially an overview, a kind of boot camp in Western culture, in in thinking hard and reading seriously, learning language, uh, and uh, and in. And you might say in immersion of the ideas and ideals that we have inherited, but also in learning the skills to approach those and transmit those to other, uh, other, other domains and spheres. It is certainly the case that we have an absolute commitment to freedom of inquiry and to freedom of, you might say, freedom of thought and the freedom of speech that is the means through which that inquiry can take place. So we're, we're absolutists on that question. Um, but it's also important to say that, that, that that's a kind of, 
almost a procedural affair. Uh, you know, freedom of speech does not a university make. Of course, anything that's worthy of the name of a university or a college or any educational institution at all has to have freedom of speech because how can you pursue the truth if you're not allowed to talk about it? But it's not alone enough. I mean, if freedom of speech were enough, every you know, broadly speaking, every cafe, every Starbucks, every street corner would, broadly speaking, be a kind of university because you can, generally speaking, talk pretty freely in this country. Um, and so the reason I, I try and make that, that comparison is because universities aren't just about places, aren't just places where people can talk freely. There's lots of those places. They're also meant to be fundamentally places where people investigate certain questions and certain domains of inquiry, where they both, they both transmit and, 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 and investigate the discoveries and, and problems and ideas and ideals of the past through its written uh, 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 and recorded re records, but also, on the other hand, think about the questions that are most pressing in our own time. And those two things are, are closely related. And so what I'm trying to say is simply that, that curriculum is fundamental to the university. You know, it's not just that you can talk freely, it's what you talk and think about. And universities, it's a bit like a concert performing hall. You can listen to music anywhere, but there are places where it's meant to be performed at the highest level. And, the, and, and there's things that you can't, you can't, unless you gather a symphony together, you can't ever play it. You can't do it on your own. And so the university is dedicated in that kind of way, in a special uh, mode to the highest and best that has been thought and said and to the transmission of those ideas and ideals in a community that is devoted precisely to that and those communities have we know because history teaches us this very clearly have always been at or the bedrock of the transmission of our culture so i would also say finally that you say you know what does it look like you know it actually and i think conservatives need to really wrestle with this you know a genuine community or atmosphere of freedom of speech is, you know, it's one thing to say it as if, you know, freedom of speech is about, you know, I don't know, uh, saying hard or mean or difficult or always, you know, simply challenging, you know, status quo and you're always the outsider. We all would like to think about our own freedom of speech and we should think about that because it's absolutely damn important. But it, the truth is you can only have a culture of freedom of speech and inquiry if each of us also wants to hear the things that we don't know or see or believe. And so you might say that a, a culture is only gen, a culture of freedom of speech is only as free as you yourself welcome genuine good faith critique from others and, and, and you might say challenges and questions because that's what really sustains a culture. And we all know this in our personal lives, right? Look, it's actually quite hard to tell something someone you don't think they want to hear like it could be someone you love very much it could be your best friend your your wife your mom you know your, your your brother it's actually quite hard to do that and to do it in the right way so they can hear it but it's also hard to be that person who's hearing that and so you might say there's a moral dimension here where you want to create a culture in which in which each of us wants to learn genuinely wants to learn and hear what we don't know from others who think they see things we don't yet see, both to give that to others and to receive it from others. And that's the real fundamental test of whether a culture has genuine freedom of speech, not merely a procedural or legal commitment to it. On the programs, you you mentioned the one-year um, master's program. Do you, 
I know you're enrolling for the fall. Is that the first one, or is there one going on right now? There's one going on right okay. now. We we had a we had a thousand applicants for wow. 24 spaces just under a year ago. I mean, that's how great the demand for serious educational opportunities is. A thousand applicants for 24 spaces. I think that makes it far and away that year at least the most competitive, uh, or you might say the most applicants for the Fewer Spaces program that I know of in the country. Uh, so we had these, this uh, great crop of applicants, and they're coming now towards the last, say, quarter of the academic year. They started off, it's a one-year, as I say, sort of boot camp in, in, in Western, uh, Western culture, uh, and it began with, with two months in Greece, uh, immersive uh, immersion in the Greek language, and uh, you might say it was sort of Intensive Greek meets uh, the Grand Tour because they got to see a great deal of, of the, the most glorious uh, ancient sites and locations of, uh, of the Hellenic world. Uh, so they had the eight weeks there and then three eight-week terms or quarters here in Savannah. Uh, and those are, broadly speaking, tracing the history of, uh, of our civilization through the ancient in, term, in the first term here in Savannah, and then the medieval through the second, and the modern through the, the third of the three terms in Savannah, the fourth of the four terms of the year, which we're into now. And so we're, 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 we're rounding out, uh, coming down the home stretch of the first year of operation of our first degree program, and what a year it has been. You know, I'm curious, we, we hear a lot recently about different universities dropping humanities courses, dropping English courses, uh, all these various things that many believe are bedrock pieces of the higher education environment, the liberal arts environment, certainly. Uh, and they say that there's no degrees or those degrees don't lead to meaningful jobs or whatever peplum that they give for not wanting to do those. Do you think that trend is going to continue to a point where you have schools that are doing computer programming and, and maybe, you know, quote unquote, real job stuff? And then there's schools like Ralston that are the humanities schools and they're suddenly completely different tracks. Well, let me say a couple of things there, Peter. The first is I just completely reject the premise that humanities degrees don't lead to meaningful jobs. I mean, that's just not true. I mean, you know, let's look at Supreme Court justices, presidents, uh, uh, CEOs of companies, uh, directors of nonprofits, people in media. Uh, did they all study business or physics? I, I mean, I'm a great fan of studying physics. I think there should be more people doing it, to be honest with you. But, but the fact of the matter is it just doesn't, the, the proposition is absurd. It doesn't stand up to the most basic uh, real-world uh, uh, investigation. Um, so, first of all, humanities studies do and have through all of history lead to very interesting forms of employment. And a lot of that employment, though this is not always the most important thing, is very highly remunerative. Uh, so that's just a fact. And it's a fact we need to keep in mind, lest we should fall into the ignorant view that humanities education, you know, like the what are you going to do with that uh, notion. But the second thing I want to say is much, much more important than that. And, 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 and I say that, you know, in a way gently, because making a living is really important. We all know that, you know, we all need to put, you know, food on the table. But the second thing I want to say is even more important than you might say the instrumental outcome of your, your studies. And that really is the question of, well, what is life for? How, what kind of a life do you want to live? I mean, we can do lots of things for, you know, for instrumental reasons, like you, you go to this school to get that job and you get that job because it pays a certain amount of money. But, but you can't live life for some other reason. I mean, life is an end in itself. And so you know, the, the fundamental metric we have to apply to our lives is, 
Do I regard my own life as worth living? And how, and how can I make sure that I do that? And that's really the question that an education in the humanities is meant to help you answer. Well, it's meant to initiate you into the, to, to bring you into contact with the things that are most meaningful that you can live your life around. You know, I think on both counts, humanities education isn't going anywhere. It, uh, it, it's, 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 it's not an optional part of higher human civilization. It both leads to, to uh, many diverse range of very successful and interesting careers and is the bedrock of thinking about what kind of life you should live in the first place. Uh, you know, how do you grapple with questions of mortality, justice, love, redemption, you know, uh, uh, fin you know your own finitude? Um, but then I would also finally say that beyond all of that, it will be very interesting to see what the marketplace will, 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 will reveal in the coming, coming uh, weeks, months, years ahead. As I say, we had 1,000 applicants for, for 24 spaces. I mean, I think that's very considerably more students per, you know, applicants per space than the Ivy League colleges have. And that's not to say that we're, we're, we're somehow suddenly competing with them. It's simply to make the point that there's a very, very significant demand that in some sense is being untapped by the status quo. And I predict, as in any other marketplace, that uh, alternatives will rise to meet that demand. And we should certainly hope so, because nothing less than our civilization depends upon it. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, so real quick, five years, 50 years, where do you see Ralston College? Okay, within five years, we expect to have uh, four or 500 students uh, all studying at what we hope will by then be acknowledged as one of the best places to get a transformative education in the humanities uh, at the graduate level and undergraduate level uh, in due course as well. Uh, in 50 years, and, and let me say, you know, in that five years, you know, when I say the word transformative, I don't say that, I don't say that lightly. We want to be a place where people can come and have their lives very deeply and meaningfully changed for the better. So that, you might say, is the real purpose of a college, right? It's not about some system change. That system change only comes through particular individuals. And then, you know, 50 years from now, you know, it's like, you know, what does the tree look like 50 years? Bigger, stronger, more sustaining, you know, many birds in the branches. You know, we hope that, uh, we hope and intend that the college will be a place that can provide very significant cultural, intellectual, spiritual resources to uh, many thousands of people, uh, not only in the coming decades, but for many decades, perhaps centuries in higher education. You know, Oxford was founded about a thousand years ago. That's a, you don't plant those trees unless you want them to stay, away, stay around for a long time. So God willing, uh, we'll have a long, a long future. Well, we are excited to watch how Ralston College grows. Stephen Blackwood, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Well, did that help you get a little more optimistic about the state of the academy? Obviously, major improvements aren't going to happen overnight. The timeline for both building a school and then that school leaving a mark on the broader ecosystem is a decades-long affair. Doing so takes creative thinking. You know, I was fascinated by the way University of Austin is changing the whole structure of both the curriculum and the funding model. This is not a passion project brought on to simply challenge the liberal nature of university. It really is reimagining what student-centric education can be. It's like the comparison Stephen drew about how you can listen to music anywhere, but a concert hall is where it was meant to be at its highest and its best, and that the academy should be the same way when it comes to learning and understanding and expanding our liberal institutions and ideals. 
These are big undertakings, and I also think it's commendable that both have found ways to get started. They are really bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to getting these schools off the ground, not waiting for it to be perfect, but finding ways to test the model. You know, I don't often endorse giving to higher education, but University of Austin and Ralston both offer a compelling argument for support. If either are of interest to you, you can support them through your Donors Trust Donor Advise Fund. And if you don't have a fund yet, we stand ready to help you get going. You can learn more at DonorsTrust.org and can request an informational packet to help you decide if a donor advised fund could be beneficial to your charitable efforts. Well, thank you for joining us here on Giving Ventures. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app. And we will be back soon with another great episode to help you discover new ways to support your principles with your philanthropic dollar. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.